Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I'm glad to be with you, my friends, here at the end of all things. It does feel that way sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> what a gut was, punch, though, huh? That, yeah. When that came up in the movie, you're like, man, if you are, if if you didn't think you could tear up in a fantasy movie, that will get you. Oh, there's multiple moments. So, well, we'll get into that because in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 2003, and we are here at our Oscar Best Picture winner episode, which also could have been our box office champion episode, which we ended up covering Finding Nemo for. But the movie is The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, which won Best Picture and was the number one movie at the box office, which is something that doesn't happen that often, you know, or at least not as often as you might think it would. Well, Return of the King was a storm of uh, excellence, Josh, not just uh, from box office, but from Academy Awards, it's tied for the most wins ever, winning, winning 11, and it also swept. It won everything it was nominated for. Yes, and it's the biggest sweep ever. So I think those other movies that it's uh, Titanic and Ben-Hur that it's tied with for uh, winning 11, and I assume that means that those movies were both nominated for more than 11 awards but didn't win them all. So this is the biggest clean sweep, which is a weird statistic, but impressive, you know, getting all the awards that it was nominated for. And uh, that is, to uh, break it down, it won Best Picture, Best Director for Peter Jackson, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Makeup, Best Original Score, Best Original Song for Into the West, performed by Annie Lennox, Best Sound Mixing, Best Film Editing, and Best Visual Effects. It's interesting to me, I didn't look at statistics on this, but it's got to be one of a smaller number of movies that are nominated or that win Best Picture and are not nominated for any acting awards. I don't know how often that happens. And we talked about the Best Actor category recently. Um, I guess if we're talking about Supporting Actor, you can't tell me there's no reason Ian McKellen shouldn't be nominated for this one. Yeah, or Sean Astin, too. I mean, as you just uh, delivered that line earlier, I mean, he, he, uh, or is actually. That, that's a Frodo line, but he says it, he says it to Samwise Ganji. So, um, but I agree with you, Josh, just to, just to let you off the hook here. I think this is Sean Astin's best acting work. Yeah, he is, he is great. And the, the interplay between Sam and Frodo, between Sean Astin and Elijah Wood is so good. I mean, I, I suppose there are so many actors in this movie that maybe it would have been difficult for voters to kind of hone in on one or two to pick. But I think it, part of that goes to the way that this movie isn't given credit as much for the acting, as much as people love it. And it's this giant spectacle and all of those technical awards it gets and everyone gives it credit for that. Um, and Peter Jackson as a director kind of wrangling that all together but the acting is is also great. And this movie wouldn't work if it wasn't so well cast. And if the actors didn't all bring, uh, you know, their talents to those roles, I think it would it would fall apart. Yeah, Josh, to kind of go over I, what I think is going to be the theme of the episode. It's a real perfect storm of excellence all the way through technical acting, visual music like this just has it. Josh, here are the nominees. Uh, so some good ones, obviously. This was a pretty good one. Uh, best Supporting Actor, Tim Robbins won for Mystic River. 
Alec Baldwin was up for the cooler. Benicio Del Toro for 21 grams. I think maybe I would have taken him out. He got his win for traffic and deserved it. But And that movie is terrible. 21 grams, not traffic you're talking about. Traffic is good. 21 grams is awful. Jaimon Hansu for In America and Ken Watanabe for Last Samurai. I mean, dude, I'm taking out Benicio and I'm putting in uh, Sir Ian, my friend. Yeah, I'm all, I'm all for that. I know you love In America also. which it's a, is, great, it's a great movie, but not the subject of this, Josh. True, true. I just want to reiterate 21 grams, horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Noted, Josh. Noted. Yes, thank you. Um, so this movie, uh, of course, was also a massive, massive hit. It grossed $1.142 billion. I think this is the first billion-dollar grossing movie that we've talked about. On its budget of $94 million. So, I mean, that's kind of a small budget in a weird way for a movie that's this big. Although I think part of that is because it's budgeted as, you know, they shot all three movies in this trilogy at the same time. So they're all kind of budgeted together. And even though they did go back and do some reshoots after the first and second movies were such huge box office hits, I assume the vast majority of that budget money was spent already. Yeah, uh, I, I I did a little math because you know we love math here. On Ooh, Austin math! Yeah, we're so bad at it. The the trilogy, the Fellowship, uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Fellowship of the Rings, ninety four million, and it returned eight hundred eighty eight point three million. Two Towers, ninety three million, and it returned nine hundred fifty one point two million. And then, like you said, this was ninety four million one point one four two billion for a total two hundred eighty one million dollars. They grossed two billion and nine, uh, 2.9 billion, uh, almost $3 billion worldwide, Josh. I didn't do as much as I should have, but uh, You're so yeah, close. almost $3 billion, Josh. Two billion, 900 million, 800, 15,000, maybe something like that. So, that sounds good. That is know. very close to 3 billion. I feel like, see, what would happen now is like Marvel would just spend $280 million on one movie. And assume that it will make $3 billion at the box office. Maybe I should, as an independent filmmaker, start pitching myself like that. Like, hey, look at what Lord of the Rings does. If you give me $281 million, maybe I'll make you a few billion back on this small rom-com <laughs> I wrote. So. Yeah, that's a good idea. A, a, a trilogy of rom-coms, maybe? Or, or just a one rom-com divided into three movies so yeah. that they don't the couple doesn't actually get together until the end of the third movie. You know, Peter Jackson was so revolutionary in the way he shot this. Like you said, uh, he shot all three at once, which was the first time I'm pretty sure that was done. So why not with a romantic comedy, Josh? Absolutely. And Peter Jackson also came from not not maybe a uh, Jason Harris level background, but certainly uh, not necessarily the background that you would immediately think he would be given $280 million to make this giant fantasy trilogy. I mean, he was still a fairly small scale genre filmmaker at this point. I mean, he had made a movie that we talked about in a previous episode, The Frighteners. But as we talked about in that episode, as much as Dave loves The Frighteners, <laughs> right. um, it was not a successful movie, really. Um, yeah, but a few things to bring up here, Josh. One, yes. as we talked about in The Frighteners, he had to create his own visual and special effects company. So that really played to his advantage with this. Then two, Location, location, location. He's from New Zealand. They knew that this was the perfect place to recreate Middle Earth. So he had a lot going for him. 
And three, Peter Jackson and Dave have similar haircuts, as I've mentioned before. <laughs> yes, yes, they do. And clearly the hair is what gives Peter Jackson his powers. Um, but, you know, it certainly was a risk. It was a risk to give him this huge project, which maybe wasn't viewed at the time as as huge a project as it certainly became. Um, they didn't anticipate it would be this uh, sensation, but it's still a lot of money to give to this one filmmaker and commit to releasing these three really long movies. And, uh, you know, that's a gamble that paid off. And I think in a weird way, this this is similar to like a lot of the movies that we talked about in our 1977 season, where these studios give these filmmakers with their own unique visions a bunch of money to go off and just realize that. And and Peter Jackson was trusted to do that. I remember I was sitting on a plane. It must have been around like 98, 99. I'm not sure when exactly this was greenlit, but I, I was reading a movie magazine. It had like one of those little tiny sidebar things that Peter Jackson had just been given the go ahead to start working on the Lord of the Rings. And I was like, are you serious? Because you guys know how much I love Peter Jackson. But I was like, after the Frighteners and a bunch of splatter movies and of course, Heavenly Creatures. But uh, yeah, I was like, are you freaking serious? That's insane. Well, a few things about that. Um, yeah, I mean, 281 million, like Josh, like you said, it is a risk because it's they're shooting all three at once. So if the first one tanks, you're pretty much screwed, right? Right. Secondly, it's not the first ever version of a film Lord of the Rings project, right? So right. we don't know what the return is. And uh, it's New Line, which has more than once staked its uh, studio on filmmaker delivering. And in this case, there was a real pivot here for New Line going into this fantasy realm and and really backing it. And it, and it worked out, man. That it did. And this movie... Again, it hits on all the levels. You know, it was a huge, huge, huge box office hit, and it was a major award winner. And it also did really well with critics. It was incredibly well reviewed. Roger Ebert is actually one of the more measured reviews that I found, who only gave it three and a half out of four stars. Uh, and he says, at last, the full arc is visible, and the Lord of the Rings trilogy comes into final focus. I admire it more as a whole than in its parts. The second film was inconclusive and lost its way in the midst of spectacle. But Return of the King dispatches its characters to their destinies with a grand and eloquent confidence. This is the best of the three, redeems the earlier meandering, and certifies the Ring trilogy as a work of bold ambition at a time of cinematic timidity. That it falls a little shy of greatness is perhaps inevitable. The story is just a little too silly to carry the emotional weight of a masterpiece. And, and I don't agree, as we we're just talking about with the Sam and, and Frodo relationship, I feel like there's a lot of emotional weight to this movie. But I do agree with Ebert, and we had talked about this uh, before recording, as, as we all kind of, we watched the whole trilogy <laughs> leading up to this, that uh, that second movie was a bit of a letdown, at least for me coming to it this time. Uh, 100% agree with you. And about 85% agree with Ebert, Josh. Uh, yeah, The Two Towers is the worst of the three. And it's not a bad movie. It's just that the first one is great. And this one is a masterpiece. This is the best of the bunch. I think it does achieve that greatness. So I would rather it be that way. The one in the middle kind of, eh, not as good. And then because we got the satisfying and conclusive ending we needed on this one. 
Right. And what do you think about Ebert's claim about this not having that emotional weight? Did you feel those emotions? Yeah, I totally did. And uh, obviously with, uh, like you said, Sam and Frodo, but I think Gandalf as kind of like the leader and Aragon and, you know, his love story there. And then also even with the the crazy um, king who wants to burn his son alive, I thought like even that was emotionally kind of it, it held all my interest in it and it, it, I wanted to see it through the whole way. So I agree. Yeah. It, it, it yeah. got me emotionally. And, it, and not just that the two, uh, the two other hobbits, uh, Pippin and Mary, right. They both have uh, good solid arcs to follow through with on this iteration of the project. Yeah. And I think those characters kid like are kind of annoying at times and they have the worst arc in the second movie where they're hanging out with the trees and it's like, who cares about this? Honestly, but um, they they certainly uh, were redeemed in this film. And and I think that other storyline that the, you're talking about, about uh, Denethor, played by John Noble, and how he's kind of gone a little mad with grief over the death of his son, Boromir, the Sean Bean character from the first movie, and is now going to immolate himself and his other son, Faramir, played by David Wenham. And there's a lot of emotional power to that from a character that we had never seen before. That character isn't in the other movies. I think he's in the extended edition of The Two Towers, but not in the regular edition. And so we don't really know anything about him, but he comes in in this movie and you you feel that and it's a worthwhile subplot. He's got a lot going, you know, and a lot of different emotions he's got to deal with. And Josh, kudos to you. Emulate. Come on. How many times are we getting to use that? I wish I could say uh, defenestrate at some point, but it hasn't come up. So. Well, you know, it just might uh, at some point. We'll we'll hold hold that one in reserve. And I mean, he almost defenestrates himself, but he throws himself off of a cliff instead of out of a window. And that's a, such a great shot when you get the like full scale of Minas Tirith as you see this tiny little figure on fire just dropping down from it, and you really understand how massive all of this is and how tiny that one person is in comparison to it. Yeah, Josh. Um, I mean. Doing the research on this one, I mean, we could have been doing research for weeks. We we like to do research, and hopefully, as I like to say, we bring the meat to you guys. But this one, we could have just kept going down wormhole after wormhole after wormhole. But when you're talking about that shot, I had read that Peter Jackson had uh, he had bought forty thousand little action figures, so he could always like kind of set up uh, battle scenes like in his own workshop and shoot them with lipstick cameras and just kind of pre-production the heck out of this thing. And I think it shows not just in that, but in the battles, especially. Yeah. I want to see Peter Jackson's full on remake of the Lord of the Rings just with action figures. I think that would be amazing. Todd Haynes can support on that one. Yes. So uh, Ebert was the most measured really. And other critics were just really like rapturous about this film. David Hunter in the Hollywood reporter said, an epic success and a history-making production that finishes with a masterfully entertaining final installment, New Line Cinema's adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings is a soaring legend in its own day and destined to be cherished for many ages to come. The Return of the King is the longest and most complicated of the Three Rings films and probably fated to be the biggest moneymaker. Sure to be an Oscar contender in many categories, and a breathtaking argument for director Peter Jackson winning every award there is to give, King has none of the usual deficiencies that frequently scuttle third films. And I love that he's just going so over the top, and yet he's totally right about all of that. Yeah. It has 
it's become this classic. This is not one of those movies where it was a massive sensation and then people kind of forgot about it or it's diminished in its power. People love The Lord of the Rings just as much now as they did at that time. Uh, it did win all those awards. It did be, do massive box office business. Um, so, you know, it's rare to read critics being that over the top positive about a big blockbuster movie. And I think there's just there was just so so much momentum for this, too. You know, you have to remember that this was three years in a row that we had these movies and it was just building and building and building and building. And you get to this climax and people are like just going nuts over it. Well. It's fun when we disagree, but we're not going to disagree on this one because I feel the same as you, Josh. And, um, you know, again, that also speaks to how good the first two were. Like we said, we didn't like the two towers as much this time. It's not a bad movie. It's just that the other two are so, so good. Right. Um, and then you're waiting to see how this all plays out and it connects on every level it delivers. Um, and I agree with you. I don't, I don't think any of that is uh, hyperbole. Like, it did win all those things. It did break all those records. Uh, one fun fact I read is when they um, had the premiere in Wellington, a, a hundred thousand people lined the streets <laughs> just to like get a glimpse of the premiere and the stars coming in. And uh, I, I think it it does deliver on all those levels. So I'm with you, my man. Yeah, and uh, I think that 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 premiere in Wellington shows how big a deal this was, also for New Zealand which wasn't necessarily known for having this major film industry. And Peter Jackson sort of single-handedly made New Zealand this important place for film. It is a thriving industry now. And I think you're right about not just that, but what he did for the economy of the entire country, <laughs> right? I didn't yeah. get a statistic on it, but imagine how many jobs he created for people, both on these productions and moving forward. Right, and, and even for Hobbit tourism which of course is something uh, that people do as well. They want to see the real locations for the Shire and that kind of stuff. Well, and, and can you blame them? They're all so beautiful, right? They look great. They are. They absolutely are. Yeah, I have not been to New Zealand. My brother lived in New Zealand for many years and, uh, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Never met any hobbits, though. Mm, interesting. Uh, well, if he does, please keep us posted on that. I will do that. We'll do an update. He doesn't live there anymore. But um, Are there any <laughs> hobbits in Austin? Austin. I don't, you know, there could be. It's it's the kind of place you might find hobbits. Anyway, Lisa Schwartzbaum in Entertainment Weekly also really, really, really into this. She said, all hail the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king. I can't think of another film trilogy that ends in such glory or another monumental work of sustained storytelling that surges ahead with so much inventiveness and ardor. The conclusion of Peter Jackson's masterwork is passionate and literate, detailed and expansive and it's conceived with a risk-taking flair for old-fashioned movie magic at its most precious, a rarity now that CGI prowess has fallen into the hands of run-of-the-mill studio ring chasers. And I think that's one place where Peter Jackson's background, his sort of unexpected background, really comes into play here because he's used to these scrappy indie productions and he's used to practical effects and stuff. He brings a lot of that to this movie, and it's the right approach. In general, I think we feel that way with most movies, we'd like to see more practical effects than CGI. But uh, yeah, they work really well here. And I, I agree with Lisa Schwartzbaum. I remember feeling this at the time, and I still feel this after the rewatch. And I wonder how you feel. This is the greatest trilogy in film history to me. There's not a better trilogy. 
I haven't seen the new Godfather three. If it's as good as people say, maybe they could, maybe they could knock it off, but this is the best trilogy that I've ever seen in film history. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right, but I think one of the weird things that we are getting now is that the idea of a trilogy is less of a thing right. because stuff never ends. Yeah, so, and in a way, this didn't because they did three Hobbit movies after this. Right, right, exactly. So, I mean, we used to point to, like, the Star Wars trilogy or whatever, and, and those are still arranged in these sets of three movies, but at the same time, the meaning, the, 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 there's not as much meaning to the idea of the, quote, Star Wars trilogy as there was, uh, say, in 2003, when it was, that was all that it was yes and this did mean a lot as a trilogy and you were immediately comparing it is it better than star wars or the godfather or whatever trilogy was your uh cup of tea at the time and and i still like i said this is the one for me yeah i mean i i would agree but it, in it, and not that this isn't great it is great but i think that that as a concept is kind of tarnished or you know it's not as much a thing anymore and so the movie being constructed like this or a series being constructed like this is not something that we're really seeing so much but this is great and it is great because it ends i think even though it ends a bunch of times as i'm sure we'll get into but in in contrast to like every major studio blockbuster of the last however many years now this movie has a goddamn ending that <laughs> concludes the story. It literally says the end on the screen. And, and we, I feel like we can't discount how much value there is to that at a time when it is like, no one wants to do that anymore. Well, I agree with you, but the problem is like we said, he did go back and make the prequels, which you could list right. as their own thing. But also you're right. If, if the studios made, you know, almost 3 billion, they're like, I, you could totally see him like, are you sure you don't want to do a story with Gandalf and Frodo and the Undying Lands? You know, where did they sell off to? What is their new adventure? And I mean, we have the the stop here because this is what Tolkien wrote, right? You know, it's like you can't go and make up the next story. But but I agree. It gives you um, a completeness and you feel like you've gone on the entire journey. You don't need to go on more of a journey with it. Right. I, I agree. And, and well, we'll talk later, but you probably don't want to go on what <laughs> turned out to be the next part of this journey. Um, so, I mean, obviously, I think we all saw this when it was released. No one didn't see it. Um, but Jason, do you remember the circumstances or what you thought at the time? Yeah, I remember. I do. I saw it in the theater and I was looking forward to it. And like I said, this delivered to me on every level as not just completing the best trilogy, but this was the best of the three. Upon rewatching, I think the first one held up for me, the the fellowship, the second one, the two towers, I thought didn't the second half is great. This first half I didn't really get into, so that one didn't hold up as well. But this one's just a grand slam. This one holds up extremely well and um I really, really loved watching it again. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this holds up really well. And I also felt like The Two Towers was a bit of a letdown in the middle. I think I maybe liked The Fellowship of the Ring still the most this time around because it's the most character driven yeah. and it's the most kind of focused, you know, the characters. It's about the characters coming together. And Two Towers is about bringing, pulling them apart. And this one brings them back together, but they're still very much all in different places throughout the majority of this movie. But yeah, all of them are great. And I remember seeing, I saw this movie twice 
in the span of like a week, I think, because I saw it at a, pre at a press screening to write a review and I was right along. I feel like I was also caught up in this ridiculous tide of, of, of praise. I remember giving it four and a half out of five stars in my review that I wrote, which I probably wouldn't do now. And I don't give to like any movie that I've, I've seen just for the first time. But I mean, it's still great. And I enjoyed that. And then I, I wrote an article about a marathon of all the Lord of the Rings movies that was done at a local movie theater here. So right almost immediately, you know, within a few days or less than a week, I went in and watched this ridiculous 12 hour thing of the extended editions of the first two movies, followed by the regular edition of this, because it was new at the time and the extended edition didn't exist, thankfully. So it wasn't the four and a half hour version. Um, but, you know, that was a great experience because the press screening, I think, was just the press and people were excited, but it's not the same. It's just a handful of people. And so sitting there surrounded by the super fans, the people who are willing to spend 12 hours watching this stuff, and some of them are dressed up and everyone's really excited and experiencing it for the first time when I've already experienced it, but I'm like the only one there who has. Um, that was a fun, if exhausting, I do remember like laying down on some seats at one point <laughs> because there were some empty seats next to me. Um, but, and I had to, I had to sit in the second row because I was oh let God. in at the last, I was let in at the last minute because they wanted to sell as many tickets as possible and not, you know, give away a seat to the press unless it was available. But that was in a weird way part because it's like it's just an overwhelming experience to have. So yeah, that was that was something. I have some follow up questions. First of all, <laughs> second row, I might. Yeah. Uh, I mean, dude, I could not do that. I could not sit in a movie theater, probably for one of these movies in the second row, let alone all three. Uh, that's yeah. insane, Josh. Yeah, it was. It was insane. And um, but I mean, again, it was as much about that experience. And I'd seen all the movies, although I hadn't seen the extended editions of the first two movies before, but I was, you know, I was familiar enough that it was like, it was more just about the atmosphere and less about, can I pay attention to every single second of this movie? But I definitely remember lying down because my back hurt. How, uh, how long were the breaks <laughs> in between the movies? I mean, they were, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 minutes, something. I mean, long enough for everyone to go out and get something to eat and whatever. And definitely, I remember people lying down in the hallways. And, and that was the thing. I don't know as theaters open back up, um, as we're in this very uncertain moment, whether those things will come back. But this has been a huge thing for so many of these franchise things. And even more, like there were some Marvel marathons that were done when various Marvel movies came out that are 24 hours long and people just go and I, that's, I, I don't know. It's too much. This yeah. was the right amount of ridiculous. I also did one for the Saw movies one time. Oh, God. <laughs> that <No>. was, <laughs> no, I remember being, it was like, that was like me and like six other people. No one wanted to do that. No one dressed up as Jigsaw, but I think I watched five Saw movies in a day. Yeah, and you were out in an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, they are shorter. Hey, Josh, you mentioned the extended cuts. Now we yes. know that this one has an extended cut, which obviously wasn't ready when you did that. Have you seen the extended cut of this one? No, I never have. And I did not watch it this time. I mean, we, I think all probably watch this on HBO Max where it's uh, at right now. And they have the extended edition on there that you can watch. But as much as I think this movie is great, I don't want another hour of it. It's just enough. Yeah, it's so. right. But I mean, I, I mean, and also this is the best picture. So kind of like we talked about with Amadeus, we we're watching the version that won the best picture. Right. I think that's true. That's important. This is the version that people saw at the time. This is the version that got the awards. And I remember watching those first two extended editions 
and thinking there were some worthwhile additions. I think some of the secondary characters uh, get a bit more depth to their storylines, and that's cool. But you know, it, it's enough. There's do do we need more than we got nine hours of this or whatever or more just in the regular editions? That's well, funny. I think there's one big thing in this one in the extended version of this one. Yeah, which is that we've now seen a villain who, you know, has proven uh, to be a, a worthwhile villain in the first two, who doesn't even get a scene in the third one, you know, and then in the extended division, you do see Sauron and all that stuff, you know. Uh, Sauron, right? The Christopher yeah. Lee character. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, and that's one of the weird things, maybe we'll talk about it later, is that he's a villain, but he's kind of like a henchman villain. And this is a giant movie where, like, we don't really see the villain. It's just a big eye and it never talks and yet you still get the full sense of danger so uh i like christopher lee in that role but i was okay with not seeing him in this well he was not there was a <laughs> lot of controversy about that and how he and peter jackson um kind of are uh, at odds over the exclusion of that character in this one well i could see that i mean he's a big deal in those first two and i'm sure he was excited you know especially as these movies succeed and all these actors are getting this attention uh, that they didn't necessarily anticipate when they first made it, and to be cut out of that, I can see how that would be frustrating. And Dave, you also saw this in the theaters, I'm guessing, right away. Sure. Yeah, opening weekend, I'm sure it was. And I kind of remember thinking, like, this is great, and now I am not going to watch these movies ever again, because it's a lot of time spent watching these movies. Yeah, that's fair. I kind of felt yeah. that way going in, but I'm glad we watched all of them again. Yeah, I, I wasn't planning on it uh, for this. I was planning on just, you know, watching Return of the King, like a good movie podcast producer. But um, I wasn't going to watch the first two. But then I was just like, you know what? Screw it. And I'm really glad I did. Yeah, I am, too. And I feel like the, this this span of time was right. Like I right. waited long enough that it was it was a good experience to watch them again. You know, and yeah. now maybe in another 18 years, we can yeah. watch them one more time. <laughs> So Jason, as you said, we could research this forever and I'm sure there's books written about the background of this film, but is there anything specific else that you want to mention? I mean, like I said, like when you, like, like you said, like I said, like I said, like you said, I said, um, no, you're right. There's just so much, I, you go down this wormhole and you're like, at some point you have to stop, right? Cause it's just, you can keep going and going. The only other thing I saw was it had, uh, 1,489 visual effects. I remember to mark that down because that's an impressive number. But uh, otherwise, Josh, I think we covered what we could cover. I found it interesting that Fran Walsh, who co-wrote the um, screenplay and is married to Peter Jackson, and Philip Aboyens also uh, uh, wrote co-wrote the screenplay, but Fran Walsh got an Oscar for that and for co-writing the uh, song Into the West. And Howard Shore got an Oscar for Into the West and the original score. So they doubled up on their baby yeah, they did. Mm -hmm. Well, because those so the songs in all of the movies, I think, are so tied in lyrically to the story and they all represent, you know, things about it. So it doesn't surprise me that the screenwriters ended up contributing to that writing of the songs. So uh, we'll come back then in a moment, talk more about our general thoughts on The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2003, we are talking about Best Picture winner, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. 
And as we've been saying, we we did all revisit not only this film, but the previous films in this trilogy. And Jason, I think you're saying you've, you've, you think this is the best one of the three. I do think this is the best one of the three, Josh. And I get what you like about the first one um, because it's the coming together. But I could argue that for them to come together, they have to be apart to, you know, you kind of get them in increments like, oh, now we got this guy. Now we got this guy. And I kind of like in this one that we know the relationships with all of them and they come back together. I thought all the stories on their own were worthy. And obviously we get that main story with Sam Frodo and uh, Smeagol or Gollum. Um, You know, that really kind of the first two, it just kind of goes and in this one it becomes like oh he's a real villain and you know we start the movie by seeing how he turned into Gollum so I and Andy Serkis never is ever going to get enough credit for what an amazing performer he is I think he's a good actor when he plays humans but like (laughs) when he plays uh animals or creatures like nobody can touch him that's why he gets every Mm -hmm. role as them right so I liked all that stuff and I mean the battles are epic um I'm invested in all the characters. And when we get to the ending, when you want to talk about the endings, I know it's a long coda, but I thought the coda worked for me. Yeah, I was I was bracing myself for this because I know that's kind of the joke about this movie, about how many endings that it has. Although I think it has fewer endings than the book because the book goes on and on and on. And uh, that's something we hadn't mentioned uh, in the in the background here. But Dave, Jason, uh, uh, had either of you read any of these books? No, <laughs> no, me neither. I'm not much of a reader, guys. I know Dave doesn't read books and Jason doesn't really read novels. So um, that doesn't surprise me. But I, I will say that I, I had not read the books either leading up to this. I enjoyed these movies so much. I think I had the books on my shelf because they're classics and I had gotten them at some point and thought I should read them. And finally, after seeing this one or maybe after seeing, after seeing one of these, I thought, OK, I'm going to read them. And I read The Fellowship of the Ring and um, I hated it. So <laughs> it's a weird experience because I thought the movies were so great. And I read the book, it's so dry. Tolkien is, is a linguist. He's an academic and it reads that way, or at least it did to me. And I remember it took me like six months to read it because it was just a slog. And I would sit down like, oh, I guess I'll read a couple pages of this now. So uh, that's yeah. my take on The Lord of the Rings. Books. It came out in like 53, 54, I think, right? 1953 or 54. Yeah, something um, like that. But I mean, to be honest, Josh, like there's so many characters and cities that are named similarly. It gets a little confusing even watching, right? Like like I just said Sauron instead of, uh, what did I say? Sauron. Sa- Saruman, yeah. yeah like, I mean, that's obviously meant to sound similar. Right, I know, yes. but it does get confusing. You know, so yes, yes, I could see if you didn't have the visuals, how it would be even more confusing, you know, so. Isn't there a whole extra book that's like an encyclopedia of, of all of it? That's part of the main thing. Yeah, the Cimmerillion, which I haven't read, I think is part that. And it also contains other stories like myths from Middle Earth and things like that. I mean, it's another thing that people have talked about adapting in one way or another but that's never come mm-hmm. to be. It's amazing that he created this world. It's so in depth and you know detailed and it's just like you know as someone who writes for a living and you do too josh like i we could never do this no definitely not there's there's a certain level of intricacy here that is just impossible to fathom and i think there's there's a lot of 
as with any adaptation of anything, especially something that has a, such a strong fan base to begin with, there's plenty of nitpicking about what is and isn't included here and what's changed. But as we talked about with sort of related to the extended editions, like I didn't feel like there was something missing. This didn't feel like a rushed or condensed adaptation of a book. It felt full and complete. Yeah, it's there's always going to be something to nitpick. Yes. So it's like, I mean, dude, did they did they do the best possible job? I think they did. I don't think you could do a better version of this. And I'm going to remember saying that in six years when they remake this. <laughs> <laughs> so true. But I think you'll be right, even if that happens. Yeah, I mean, and this this it gives you this sense of uh, the, the epic sense, the sense of scale and the the world building that you're talking about that Tolkien does, like for as much as we see you believe that there's so much more going on that we're glimpsing like the history of something. And I think that might be, I don't know if it's Tolkien or some other fantasy writer who said that, you know, I don't think of myself as a writer of fantasy. I think of myself as a writer of history of other worlds or something like that. And I'm sure I've bungled that and miscredited it, but I think- It sounds good, man. <laughs> I think the, the point to me is that this this feels like it could be, this is the history of Middle-earth. This is Frodo's book that we see at the end that he's written about his true adventures or whatever. Um, and and part of that also is the ending, Jason, as you referenced that you know a studio head maybe would have wanted to know what was next, but you can come away as much as it's a satisfying conclusion and you feel like the story's over, you also get the feeling that these characters will continue on and they'll do more things because there's a whole world here beyond what we've seen. Yeah, you could marvel this thing out and make a spin-off out of any one of these characters, right? Like I would love to see where Gandalf and Frodo go and Bilbo on that on the boat to the uh, Undying Lands. And then, you know, uh, Aragon is king now. So what wars is he gonna have to fight? Or maybe, the hobbits, the three that are left in the Shire, get recruited on a new adventure. And there's so many different things that could be done, but um, it would just water it down in the end, you know? But, um, Josh, one thing I wanted to say is, and we keep talking about how good the writing is, and you mentioned this in the first thing, it wouldn't have mattered if not every performer just kicked the crap out of their role. Every single one is just so good. And you root for Frodo, and really you root for Sam, I think, even more than Frodo, right? And Gandalf is uh, the ideal wizard, right? And Aragon is a guy you think deserves to be king, right? So there's just, they all just do such a great job. Yeah, I agree. And of course, this is cast at a time when nobody thought of this as being this ginormous thing. And so Peter Jackson... Uh, on the one hand, you know, isn't able to cast like mega stars in these roles that that we would probably think of now, you know, if we have Marvel movies and Marvel is always casting these huge famous actors because they have just so much money to throw around, I guess. And there's there's a certain level of, uh, and I mean, not prestige, but uh, attention that you get for appearing in one of those movies. And that's not the case here. And so the cast is full of these people who are kind of longtime character actors like John Reese davies who plays Gimli, or people who were not really super well-known and, and sort of up and coming at the time, whether that's Elijah Wood or Viggo Mortensen. And it's just, yeah, it's perfectly cast. Everyone does exactly what they should do. And Jason, I know you love talking about alternate casting. And I think in this movie, there's a lot of alternate, or in this trilogy, there's a lot of alternate casting where people who are in the movie were potentially cast initially in different roles. But whatever the switches were made, everyone is exactly in the right role, I think, here. I think you're mm -hmm. right. Um, 
as we mentioned, Andy Circus, like, could you you couldn't have known how effective he was going to be and how perfectly he was going to melt with that technology. That just is it a perfect, the right guy at the right time with the right director on the right project. Right, and, and that's they're inventing that as they go along, basically. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that Andy Serkis keeps getting those kinds of roles is because he's the only person who had done it at one point. He is the originator of the concept of even doing that. And he does it better so than anybody. That, that he does, that he does. So do you have a, I mean, is, is he your favorite? Uh, actor in this movie? No, another favorite. I think I think I do think Sam is like the real protagonist that you um, get behind. But I just love Gandalf. You know, I just think Ian McKellen does such a. He brings. I, I hate to say this, uh, so I'm not gonna. You know, the, when people say it, he brings such gravitas to it, right? No, but he's just so he's so good as the wizard, and he has the uh, and he has the right amount of uh, seriousness, but he also has the sense of humor and the caring. You know, like. And you really believe all that um, all the way through. He's a good leader. He's a real good, really good leader. Right. Yeah, I agree. And and I think, yes, it is a cliche to say that about Gravitas, but I think that's important. And it's clear that Ian McKellen can do this between this and the X-Men movies where he plays Magneto. And I love and him as Magneto. He's great. But I think in both cases, he comes in and plays a character who could be extremely ridiculous and takes it so seriously and makes you believe that character 100% as a person. Right, whereas when you mentioned Gimli, that is a funny, ridiculous character, but you believe that just as much, right? That prideful dwarf who um, wants to make sure you always, he wants to make sure that you know he's always tougher than you. And he does that so well, you know? Yeah, and there's a great dynamic between him and Legolas the elf played by Orlando Bloom. Um, who was kind of a breakout star of this was definitely an unknown here. And uh, that was one of the things in the reshoots, both in this film and in the two towers where they was like, get us more Legolas. And I feel like that's one of the only studio mandated things here that you can see like, oh, this guy is, he's hot and the young women like him. So give him an extra scene or two. Well, but Vigo it's too, fine. Right? Vigo's a little sex symbol there himself, isn't he? So. He is, but I think Legolas is the one that was really more of a minor character that they had to go in and add a scene or two to give him more screen time. But none of those scenes are out of place or anything. Like I, He's a great character and I'm happy to see him. Yeah, we like all these guys. Like we haven't barely even mentioned Elijah Wood, star of North from our 1994 <laughs> season. And Good point. <laughs> Elijah Wood's great, man. He's great. You feel, again, the, the angst of this journey and the weight of this journey and that he has to take it on himself. And I also made a note of how it ends. Like, he doesn't, like, he's a protagonist, but he doesn't do the right thing to make it end. That's the power of the ring. It overpowers him, and it, he kind of gets lucky that it ends the way that it does, which shows you just what a force that ring was. Right. And he doesn't, I mean, throughout the movie, it's, he's the one who can carry it. And we think he's going to have that strength to throw it into the mountain and get rid of it, but he doesn't. And he doesn't even falter and then do it. I mean, uh, uh, Gollum Smeagol takes the ring and gets knocked in and that's how it's destroyed. And so he, he falters at the end when it counts the most. Um, but we, we don't blame him for that. We understand him as a character so well and the power of the ring so well that we feel for him in every moment. And even in the epilogue there, 
he sort of lives happily ever after in some way, but in other ways he doesn't, you know, he's kind of pale, even it's years later and he's still in pain from his wounds and he can't stay in the Shire. And as you say, Jason, we don't know what happens to him when he goes off to the elf undying lands or whatever. And presumably he's okay, but his, his, he's been so changed by this experience. And I think Elijah Wood gives you that journey. You can see him and especially watching these movies in, in like relatively quick succession, the character and how sort of fresh faced and upbeat uh, and cheerful he is in the first movie and the way the ring like weighs him down over the course of these three movies, Elijah Wood really sells that. Yeah. In that coda where he wakes up and all the characters come in, you feel so happy for him, right? That he's alive and, you know, he's getting to see all of his friends and he doesn't have that actual weight on him. The emotional weight, like you said, he's always going to deal with, but at least he has that moment, right? Of peace. Yeah, he does. And presumably in that four years intervening that we don't see, he's had a lot of nice moments in the Shire and he's got to spend time with his friends. And this is a movie very much also about the power of friendship, uh, which is a nice a thing. A fellowship of sorts, Josh. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, the fellowship is dissolved, as they say at the end, but the friendship endures. No, um, the fellowship uh, is bound forever. It's dissolved, uh, but it's also bound forever. Right, right. No, that's true. And I think it's bound by that that kinship and that friendship. And one thing that comes up a lot and we can mention is, of course, the uh, homoerotic nature, potentially, of the relationship between Sam and Frodo that a lot of people really take and run with. And I think it's clearly, it's not surprising that people go for that. And there's definitely a lot of moments in this movie where you can see that. But to me, I think what's nice about this is that it's a movie about they're not in a romantic relationship and they don't have to be in order to have really strong emotional ties to each other. It's about friendship and how powerful that is. I mean, you could pretty much pick any two characters from the fellowship and they could be in a homosexual relationship, right? If you saw Mary, you know, banging Pippin, would that really surprise you all that much, Josh? No, that'd no. be about as believable as them you know, uh, talking to a tree, a giant tree that's walking all along, you know, it's fine, you know, whatever. I don't care that, you know, a dwarf and an elf can get together in this world. I'm all for it, Josh. Two hobbits want to have sex and grab each other's giant hobbit feet. Let's get it on, you know, Gandalf. He's got more than one magical staff. Let's see oh, it. I don't know oh. what you want from me. It's so great. There it is. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the, the, we joke, but there's definitely fan fiction about all of that, if not <laughs> more that we can't even imagine right now. People certainly went with that. But and then that's great. I think people take so much ownership of this and it means so much to them that they want to create more of it, whether that's uh, weird sexual deviancy or just another story, it shows how important it is to them. But but my point is, I, I it's nice to me to see relationships that at least on the surface, in the text of the film, are not romantic and are about friendship and how powerful that is. Because I think that doesn't get enough attention in film. I agree with you, although I do disagree with you in that we can imagine it, because we can. And if you'll allow me a moment, oh. as we arrived in Gondor, I needed okay. a bag. <laughs> All right. I thought we were going to have to give you a moment of silence as you imagine, but uh, no. thankfully we, we didn't do that. Hey, Josh, what about, um, there is some romance here. Let's talk about there the romance, is. you know? Yeah. And that's one of the elements that's a bit undercooked here. Yes. And I think that's in part Tolkien's fault because Tolkien is not 
yeah, he's a, he's not really into the women. He's not he's not a fan of lady characters. There's not so, much there's not much to him. Right. And I think Jackson does what he can with that. And and one of the characters that I mentioned that gets a bit more of a subplot, I think, in the extended edition of The Two Towers is Eowyn, the Miranda Otto's character, who's a great character. And I don't know how she comes off in the book, but it does feel like maybe they thought, okay, here's a character that we can maybe beef up a little and show a strong woman and a woman who's able to go into battle and the kinds of things that an audience will want to see now that just didn't exist in this book. Um, and I like that character. I think Miranda Otto is good in that role. But certainly the love triangle between her and Aragorn and Arwen, played by Liv Tyler, the elf princess, is is pretty minimal. Yes. The arcs that they have away from the love triangle are, are better. The Miranda Otto character with going into battle and uh, it's her and M- Pippin. No, Mary, right? I don't know. They're the same. Okay. And then um, the Liv Tyler character, where she has to choose between immortality and love and a family with Aragorn, like that's a more effective uh, conflict for her as well. Yeah, and I think those characters, like both of those actresses do do good work within the limited scope of what they're offered. And I don't necessarily think that this is a movie that needs more romance. I mean, that's definitely not what the movie is about. But that is one element that you can point to that's like, is a bit shaky. It, it requires a bit of a leap on the part of the audience to fill in some gaps over how much these characters care about the romantic aspect. Yeah, and again, it's like, we're already at three hours and 20 minutes. How much more could we do here? So I I agree with you, not necessary. I mean, this is really about, like you said, them coming back together and working together to feed a, defeat a mysterious black eye on top of a mountain. You know, and it's and the battle scenes are, you know, breathtaking. They are. Yeah, we haven't really mentioned that much, but and that's one of the things watching the two towers, the big climactic battle there of Helm's Deep has this reputation as like one of the greatest screen battles ever. And I remember seeing it in a theater and just being amazed by it and watching it at home. It definitely didn't quite have that power. But not only that, I felt like watching this movie with the battles in here and the Battle of Minas Tirith. And I liked these more. And in part, maybe I think that Helm's Deep battle is all in the dark and it just looks kind of murky on your TV and or at least maybe on my TV. And the battles here are more in the light and you can make things out more and you can get a better sense of where all the people are. Um, So I don't know how you felt, Jason, but I kind of like the action in this movie more. I kind of think I like them both because I did say in the two towers that first hour and a half, I just felt were like, what are we doing? Like, where's the momentum? And then once it got into the battle, I I was really into it. With this, it's almost all battle, right? Like the last two hours is one after the next. And, you know, there's, we would, I would just have to take notes like almost every second if I wanted to mark down all the amazing shots, you know, when the white riders are coming in or, you know, the torches are being lit to show that there's support, the boulder, the point of view of the boulder getting kind of slingshotted over and, or catapulted. And then, so yeah, I, I, I was, um, I was in it the whole way. Yeah, I was too. And I, you're right. There's so many shots. I mean, that, that one that stuck with me this time was that shot of, of Denethor on fire falling, uh, off the edge of Minas Tirith, but there are just so many iconic shots and, and moments in this movie. It would, it would take forever yeah. to list them all. If I would name one other, it's when we see the uh, tunnel 
to is it Shalob the giant spider and he does this weird kind of dutch angle reverse zoom on the tunnel and you're like even if you had not heard anything or Gollum's plan you'd be like oh shit's about to go down <laughs> yeah and that's a great sequence we hadn't mentioned that there but the the spider is so fucking scary like mm-hmm. and and that's one of the moments and i think there are moments throughout this trilogy where you're you realize peter jackson is the right guy for this because he draws on his horror background and he gives you this real sense of the danger and the terror that these characters are facing and that that spider is is one of the scariest most intense and effective things in this whole trilogy and and is sort of you know you could argue is like a a sort of a side obstacle that is not central to the plot, but it's just such a great sequence that you want to see more of it. And it just gets him. Like it doesn't get him in the way that you think it doesn't eat him. It just gives him like a puncture that's poisoning his body. And then it wraps him up and it's, ooey and gooey and gross and just icky, right? <laughs> Can I mention one other action moment? Yes. Uh, just because I think it's important. A wolf battering ram with its mouth breathing fire. That rules. That is, that is good. So there's some crazy weird creatures here. The, the like giant elephant-y, mammoth-y things are great. And you really get- And the way they take of, them down is awesome too. Yeah. yeah. And you get a sense of how huge they are. The eagles who uh, are the, on the, the side of the good guys who eventually rescue Frodo and Sam at the end. I also wanted to mention for all of the great action, one of the great things in this movie is a battle that isn't shown when Denethor sends Faramir, his son, back to the city that's already been overrun by the orcs. And you know, he's sending all of these people to their deaths. And we don't see it. We see them go off. And then we see, you know, we get a bunch of other plots and then eventually we see Faramir come back and he's the only survivor. And in a way, I think that's almost more powerful because you can think of the the terrible death and the unnecessary death that this crazy leader has sent his son and all of his soldiers into. So I like that for a movie that's all about doing the most possible, there was a sense that like, no, here's something that we don't want to show. I also like that Denethor, you know, he feels like he's going to lose and tells everyone to abandon their posts and he gets a good rap from the good rap on the nose from uh, Gandalf who has to, you know, get the troops fired up to, to go again. So um, the other thing we should talk about, which is, uh, again, it moves very quickly, but effectively is, um, the Army of the Dead, Josh. Yeah, that's another cool Peter Jackson horror thing. These these like green, sickly green looking ghosts that Aragorn is able to rally because they've been cursed and they have to serve the King of Gondor in order to uh, finally go to their final resting place. And I mean, one thing, I, I they're, they're cool looking and they're well established, but one thing that not only this movie, but I feel like all three of these movies do is there are a lot of moments of like, uh oh, we're fucked, and then suddenly over the horizon we're saved, I mean, and that's another one. Of you're them. right. I mean, the two towers that happens is you know, and then this actually happens twice in that battle, right? You know, so but you must admit, Dead Men of Dunharrow or Dunharrow is a cool band name. Totally, and that's a cool moment. And and again, at least it's established. It's not just oh hey, look who showed up. You know, we get a whole plot about them going into that cave and having to to convince them to join up and all of that and it's it's well done but i think that is one thing that that jackson goes to a lot and it's always great you're always like oh yeah the guys the good guys are gonna win 
Um, it never, it never gets yeah. old. It's movie but, moment. It's you're eating right. your popcorn and raising your hands. Yeah. You yes. love it. And uh, yeah, Josh, I mean, we could keep going and going, but I think maybe for time's sake, we might want to rate this one. Uh, yeah. We don't need to make a three and a half hour episode on this movie. Yeah. So, so shall we rate it out of five, yeah. five, five, rings? five, five rings? I mean, you know, obviously, yes. Five rings. Uh, <laughs> It gets five rings from me. One of the few wow. movies that I give five rings to. I and I thought about it because I remember when I first saw it, I I thought it was that good, and it held up all the way for me. All five, baby, I'm all in it. It can make its own Olympics logo because I'm giving it five rings. All right, <laughs> I'm going to give it four. And like I said, I gave it four and a half at the time that I reviewed it when it first came out. But I think this is a really, really good movie. Um, I don't know if I can give it a perfect rating for, you know, little nitpicky reasons, but we don't need to go into that. This is a great movie. And I mean, who, who has not seen this movie, but if for some reason you never watched the Lord of the Rings movies, like fucking watch the Lord of go the Rings watch movies. All of Jeez, them. What's but, wrong with you? And Josh, I just want to say, I don't take away on those little nitpicky things because my overall enjoyment and astonishment, uh, was, uh, it overtook that those little nitpicky things like we talked about. So you're getting all five from me, fella. Yeah, no, totally. I'm not trying to discount that at all. It's it's his deserved rating. So, Dave, what do you want to give this? I'm giving it a four, but it is just one of the best. It's amazing. That it is. So we'll come back and talk about the legacy of The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this epic episode of our season on the films of 2003. We've been talking about the epicest film of the year <laughs> and the best picture winner, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. And and I mean, just as we could for the, the background on this film and, and just go into so much detail. I mean, I feel like the legacy of this film is so massive as well because it's it was such a huge hit. It's still so beloved. It's so influential. So I don't know uh, where to start. I mean, I I feel like we could start with just the the extended edition of well, this and how extended editions are more a thing. I feel like because of these movies. No, I'll tell you where I start. It changed the yeah. whole film industry. You know. Okay, or that. Right, like we talked about um, in segment one. They were not shooting all three movies at the same time in trilogies or two movies at the same time and. It sounded so crazy when they were going to do this. Well, we're going to shoot and we'll shoot parts of Fellowship and we'll shoot parts of Two Towers and we'll shoot parts of, you know, Return of the King. And eventually we'll have all three and we'll put them out one Christmas after the next after the next. Just insane. And they got the budget for all three. It saved New Line, right? Again, um, it kind of took this genre to the next level. Like, again, there's nothing that we can say that is overstating this film and this trilogy's influence on film. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and in the there's so many different later adaptations of popular books that that took this uh approach of if not filming all of them at once at least multiples. Uh multiples at once. The The Hunger Games I think did that and Twilight did that. Um and I'm sure others Harry those are the Potter, ones that Potter I think. Yeah. Um and so because this movie did well, they assumed that they could do that also. I mean, the Matrix sequels did that. Those aren't literary adaptations, but they did that for the second and third Matrix movies, which 
I think are after this. I'm pretty sure are later than this. Yeah, a few other things, Josh. I mean, and you can talk about the extended editions in a minute there. I just wanted to say that, like, I feel like any big movie like this now, I mean, we could talk about the Snyder Cut. I don't know if we <laughs> want to do that. But the idea of, like, it's a popular movie, so we just want more of it. And we'll, you know, give you every possible little scrap that we have. I think this was one where people were so eager well, for that that it became a bigger thing. Well, here's something interesting. Yes. Everyone made so much money and got so much power off of this movie that they could pretty much do anything they wanted for at least for a while. And most of the actors and Peter Jackson have made interesting choices. They didn't all go and just do crap mainstream, crap mainstream, crap mainstream. Like, yeah, Peter Jackson made King Kong to various uh, levels of acclaim. I kind of thought it was all right, but there were some sequences that were amazing. But, like, I love what he did with They Shall Not Grow Old. I'm super excited to see him use those techniques um, with the Beatles movie that he's doing now, right? Um, and he's, again, changing technology where he's taking old black and white footage and making it uh, colorized and almost almost 3D, right, in some ways. And so you're seeing, like, World War I up close. Like, it's going to change the way that history can be taught in schools. And I think that's going to be amazing. I think all of these actors could have gone on and just done, you know, one superhero questy thing after the next, but they all made some really good, interesting choices. So that to me is a really cool legacy of it. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's interesting that as massive as these movies were, none of these actors went on to become the next George Clooney or the next Brad Pitt or whatever. I mean, they're all famous to, to relative degrees, but I think you're right that they went on to make these interesting kind of offbeat choices rather than just the obvious biggest studio movies they possibly could. I mean, I think Elijah Wood and Viggo Mortensen are the closest to kind of the leads of this film. And, and both of them have made very like interesting and, and weird and sometimes baffling choices uh, for projects to take on. Viggo Mortensen especially is just a weird guy. <laughs> I think just, you know, would never have been a successful big ass movie star because he's just that's not built for that i think well i mean you know i didn't see it but he was the star of green book which just won the best picture a couple of years ago you know? that's true so um we've already mentioned his work with cronenberg in the past that we all like um you know you got to mention Kate blanchett because she's probably the most recognizable star of the bunch you know and she does i mean she's got two oscars uh already so you know she could go on and break break all types of records. She won for The Aviator, which I love, where she plays Catherine Hepburn, and then she won for Blue Jasmine, which I know you hate, but... Uh, hey, I don't hate, I just think it's not... It's an I affected it's performance, you know? Yeah, so. and and I like her overall. I think she's great, and I was... I, I forgot about that. I thought you were going to say she had won for Carol, which I guess she didn't, but maybe should have. Well, Josh, a few other things. We mentioned Magneto, where it's just... He's such... He's not even a villain. Like you root for him just as much as you root for uh, Charles, right? Uh, Xavier in those X-Men movies. A few other ones that I noted, uh, Elijah Wood, we know, of course, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And Green Street Hooligans, I think, is a really cool movie that probably a lot of people haven't seen where he goes over to England and becomes a quote-unquote hooligan, a fan of a football team, and kind of gets into the rough-and-tumble nature of it. Uh, Andy Serkis. Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, a movie about Ian Drury, the first waiver, really kind of a weird movie, not the greatest movie, but if you want to see him in a cool performance about a cool performer, uh, that's that's a good one. And then uh, 
Uh, Sean Austin, little movie called The Goonies. Well, that wasn't the legacy of it. That was that was early. Oh, that whoops, was much, whoops, my bad. Much, so. much earlier, but I'm glad you got the reference to the Goonies in there. I mean, and Andy Serkis, too, as, as we're talking about the technology here and his kind of invention of the motion capture performance, I mean, went on. Probably, I mean, in, 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 yeah, the Planet of the Apes movies, I feel like he got even maybe more acclaim for those than he did for playing Gollum. I mean, there were big campaigns to get him an Oscar nomination he for should've. playing Caesar in oh, those yeah. movies. Yeah. yeah. I think he um, should have got one for this, for Gollum as well. And also he definitely. did King Kong. He's he's unstoppable, bro. Yeah, he's great. And he is also good when he is just himself, you know, a person, but never gets the level of attention when he plays those roles as he does for the motion capture. Well, roles. yeah, and that's why I mentioned, and two others that I wrote down, the prestige, you know, these are supporting parts. And I think we've mentioned it before, 24-Hour Party People, which is one of the great movies of the last 30 years. I think people should watch that movie. So, yeah, I love 24-Hour Party People. Me too. Dave, you ever see it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's great. So, I mean, but we could keep going. Like, Orlando Bloom became like a big, you know, mainstream star. He probably was the most kind of, postery of them all for a while yes. and now now who knows what he's doing you know i don't really know so. <laughs> yeah nobody knows no he did i mean he was he was a big because the pirates of the caribbean movies were essentially at this right around this same yeah. time and so he had these two giant franchises that he was in and he was a huge heartthrob and all of that and he's still quite famous but he's more of a mid-level star now in in sort of smaller films he's the star of that amazon series carnival row which i kind of like although it's not uh, get, gets mixed reviews, but it has another season coming and is another fantasy thing. And it was, of course, married to Katy Perry. So that's a nice thing is he? for him. Yeah, he is. Who knew? Who's Jonathan Reese? Uh, I, I, I knew that. Is it Jonathan Reese Davies? That's his name, right? So, John John Reese Davies? Yeah. Gimli, yeah. Who's he married to? He's not to? married to Katy Perry. I don't no? know somebody, but definitely not Katy Perry. <laughs> and Margaret? He's in... Uh, that's random. They both have hyphens in their names. So uh, it could be. Uh, no, I mean, he had, a, he had a very long career before this, yeah. obviously, and was a, was a character actor in tons of things and is still, he's the kind of guy right now that will show up in like random straight to VOD movies in, in two scenes. Cause he's a recognizable name, but you know, he works plenty. I'm sure he's got plenty of money and people stop him on the street between this and Indiana Jones, right. you know, he's, he's got some pretty iconic roles. Um, Elijah Wood does a lot of cool horror stuff. He's a giant horror fan and he produces a lot of his indie horror films and stars in them. And, you know, it's cool again to see these people who have clout use it to do something interesting with it rather than just uh blockbuster yeah, I agree. type things. Dominic Monaghan, we know from Lost. He's on a show called Bite Squad now in Australia. So oh, I don't know what that is, but I do I do remember him on on Lost. Drive in, Shaft. Uh, drive Shaft. You, you you all everybody, the big <laughs> drive shaft hit. Hey, which uh, was a great. I got to mention song. one thing, Josh, and then and then yeah. you, then the floor is yours, my friend. Okay? okay. One of the funniest things I've ever seen is Ian McKellen on Extras, the Ricky Gervais show, when he's yeah. explaining to Ricky Gervais how he's not really a wizard, but he just acts <laughs> like a wizard, and he goes, you know, I, I'll never do it justice, but he's like. I'm not really a wizard. I look at the lines on the page and then I read the lines as if I were a wizard. And then he, he like points to the page and he goes, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, you shall not pass. Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian. Like, I highly recommend everyone watch that episode or at least look up that scene on YouTube. Yeah, and he has a great sense of humor about himself, Ian McKellen, which I think is important 
when you're in these big overblown blockbusters. Um, you know, he and Patrick Stewart, who are who are very good friends, I think they have exactly the right approach to playing these big sort of genre roles that they've played in their careers. We should mention the Hobbit movies, I guess. <laughs> Go uh, for it. You've seen them. I haven't. They're, oh, right. You haven't. And in fact, right, Jason, uh, before we were doing this, uh, said to me that he maybe would go see uh, The Hobbit because it was playing at a local theater. And uh, I said, uh, which one? And I think Jason was horrified to be reminded that there are three of them. <laughs> well, and again, this trilogy, I, as I said, is my favorite trilogy. I don't want to water it down with something that's not up there. I know this The Hobbit trilogy has mixed, you know, some people really like it. A lot of people don't, but I don't, I, it doesn't seem like it would be a good idea for me to do it unless I was like a Peter Jackson completist. Right. And it's not horrible. I think it has a bad reputation in part just because there's no way it's going to be as good as the Lord of the Rings. And the mistake that Peter Jackson made was trying to approach the Hobbit in the same way as the Lord of the Rings and making it this giant, epic, large scale thing, but the story is just not that. It's a different kind of story, even if it's though it's in the same world and it has some of the same characters. And so I think the original plan, which was that Peter Jackson was going to not direct it and it was going to be one movie directed by Guillermo del Toro could have been really cool. But once Jackson took it over, and that I think is also a big studio greed thing where they're like, why not make it three movies? We can make three times as much money. Um, it just was the wrong approach. So I remember he was adamant about not doing it for like a long time. He, every chance he got, he said he was never going to do I mean, it. And then eventually he did. I think you guys are right. And Josh, that's an interesting insight that you've given there. At the same time, I'm thinking like if I'm Peter Jackson in the small country of New Zealand and you keep throwing money at me and keep saying, well, you can make three movies and you could support so many people with jobs and continue this industry, it's got to be so hard to be like, no, this is not the way to go. Right. Yeah. Well, and that company that he created, Weta Digital, or Weta, however you pronounce it, has done far, like, is made New Zealand into this capital of creating special effects. I mean, that's a huge industry that he basically birthed in that country for more than just his movies, for all sorts of other movies yeah. as well. Yeah, I've applied for two jobs in the New Zealand film industry. And you know what the response was, Josh? We don't want you. Get the fuck out of here. Oh, I, I thought it was going to be, you, <laughs> you shall not, not pass. Yeah, there you go. That's <laughs> probably more accurate. You win. That's why I didn't get the jobs, Josh. So, there is also a Lord of the Rings TV series coming up on Amazon that Peter Jackson is not involved with. And that is, uh, Jason, you were talking about how well, we can't invent more but we can, apparently. And that's what Amazon is doing. They are creating new material within this world uh, for their series that's going to be sort of take place in the past of Middle Earth. That's okay. Yeah. It's if it's different stories. Personally, I think they should have gone the other way. And like, what happens in the Undying Lands? Let's just see that stuff. Because then it's a whole new, you know, that's a whole new palette to paint on. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, I think people, there's, there's still such love for these movies that if, if you did a sequel and we had new people playing Frodo and Gandalf or any of these characters, people would revolt. So I think yeah. they're probably better off saying, here's a whole new set of characters that you've never seen before within this world. No, no, I agree. I don't want to see them in the Undying. Oh, okay. I just want to see stories about the Undying. Let's see like a whole new land go from there. Right. Yeah. And I don't know what, if there's other different sort of uh, realms within Middle Earth that this show is going to 
take place. They've been working on it for years, and and it's still, I think, quite a ways away. So it's a massive undertaking that seems like uh, the kind of thing that will fail hard, but maybe, maybe not. It's a gamble. So lastly, uh, I wanted to mention memes because these, these, these movies have so many memes and especially in the first movie, as I was watching it, I realized I was like waiting for the moments when I have seen memes of them, you know, I hadn't seen the movie in 18 years, but I've seen memes constantly for 10 years now or whatever of things like Sean Bean saying, you know, one does not simply walk into Mordor or things like that. And there's, there's certainly some in this movie as well. So I, I feel like it's maybe a tribute to the endless appeal. I don't know what I, I don't have any insight about memes, but they exist. The one that caught me off guard was, uh, ah, keep your secrets or, or whatever. <laughs> that, that really made me laugh out loud when I actually saw it. And I was like, oh, I forgot all about that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. They're taking <laughs> the hobbits to Isengard. That's in the, in the two towers. So, uh, Jason thoughts on memes. Memes. Okay. <laughs> so on that note, that, is the Lord of the Rings, the Turn of the King. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can, and thank you for doing it. And thank you, everyone, for continuing to support. We had uh, our most successful month of downloads ever recently, and we really appreciate you guys. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Throw that thing off of a cliff. AwesomeMovieYear.com. Acceptable. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. Yeah, and thanks to if you followed us or if you shared anything with your friends or posted about us or whatever. We really appreciate it. It's exciting to see those download numbers go up and uh, know that people are listening to uh, our blather about things like uh, Rob Schneider starring in American Splendor. (laughs) (laughs) Good poll. I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And also keep an eye out. We are going to be doing a special Missing Pieces episode with Josh and Jason joining me, talking about the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the films that inspired it and the films that it inspired. So that's going to be a fun one coming up. Yeah, more. It's It'll be like The Hobbit to this episode. Hopefully yeah. it will not be. Yeah, yeah hopefully not. I mean, if you thought this was mediocre, wait till you hear that. <laughs> no, it'll be like the extended edition with more great stuff that you yes. missed out on in this in this version. That's so, the ticket. Uh, Jason, what do we have coming up in our next episode? Josh, I'd love to tell you, but then I'd be a real asshole because it's not my pick. It's Dave's pick, so I'm going to let him tell you. Yeah, so it is my pick. And of course, my real pick is the movie we'll be talking about for future cult classic. But this is also a movie I'm really looking forward to talking about. It is Todd Phillips' Old School. Much like The Lord of the Rings, a true epic. So <laughs> tune in next time for Old School. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.